Uh, Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one, to the book of Mark, chapter 4. As we are um, still in our series, we will be for the rest of, actually up until the spring, we'll be going through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the book of Mark. And we called it Man at Work, How the Son of Man Paved the Way for Us to Get to God. And as I think about that, I, I can't help but think about Christmas, how God assumed flesh and entered into his creation. And he was more than meets the eye. I mean, for all intents and purposes, he, he entered in in a very inauspicious way. He became, entered into a, a Jewish family to a teenage girl or betrothed husband. And right in the Middle East, as a young man, he became a religious, refu- a religious and uh, political refugee. And he grew up, grew up in a very inauspicious way. He was kind of a, it was a man's man, a blue-collar guy. He was a carpenter. Uh, he worked with his hands. And yet, that is the exact means by which God sent His Son into the world to identify with us, to come alongside us. And it says in the Scripture that there was nothing about Him that would make us behold Him, that would, would draw us to Him in His physical stature. It's not as if He was this, this figure that we look at and go, oh, that's the Messiah. I don't know if you've been keeping up, but there's all these different GOP debates going on right now. And I'm amazed as I see these different presidential possible candidates that are going back and forth, and I'm reminded of the days of old, uh, thinking back way back in the presidential history, and, and I keep thinking about how much we today are just image-driven, are we not? We're completely image-driven, and a president has to look presidential. It's all about the image. I mean, Ronald Reagan really knew that. That's the actor in him. He knew about what he had to portray. He had every place where he was walking and how he had to look a certain way when he was on camera. I mean, you're not going to see presidents like the days of Grover Cleveland or or Chester Arthur. You're just not going to see it in our image-driven culture. It's all about image and how people look. But see, God does it differently. It's not about image. See, God comes along to identify with us and to take our our humanity upon Himself. He really comes alongside us to identify with us in a very wonderful and magnificent way. And And it could be amazing. I mean, you'd never realize that Jesus, the Son of God, was sitting next to you. Can you imagine that? I mean, I, I, I always... Amazed, I'm amazed at how Max Lucado captures this in his book, God Came Near. And I've talked about this before, but the questions for Mary. He has, all these, he has 25 questions for Mary that he imagines Mary would have said. One of them was, did you ever have a, a difficulty explaining to him how he created the world? I mean, can you imagine Mary? I mean, we all know our faults as parents, but when you have the Son of God birthed into your house, there's got to be some problems there. I mean, you find out how faulty of a parent you are rather quickly. I mean, did he, ever, did he ever have boys make fun of him when he was young? What look did he get when the other kids were messing around during synagogue? Did he ever, did he, did he ever have a look in his face when he saw a woman selling her body, the body that he himself had fashioned, to the highest bidder? Did you ever catch him pensively holding a clod of dirt in one hand while looking at his flesh with the other? Or did you, ever, did you ever count the stars with him and succeed? <laughs> These questions. And did she ever think to herself, wow, this is God eating my soup? <laughs> I mean, he was truly more than meets the eye. Nothing about him that would cause us to behold him, to fall in reverence. You know, nothing presidential. 
He just looked like an average Joe. And I, I'm reminded of this concept when I, I think about this passage for today. We're talking about the kingdom of God. And that to the kingdom of God, we don't, we don't talk about this very often, but truly with the kingdom of God, there is more than meets the eye. It's so much more grand, more unimaginable than we could possibly comprehend. That we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. That as soon as you are saved, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you've repented of your sins, you have entered in to God's kingdom. You have become a citizen of the most high, heavenly, eternal kingdom. You have been transformed. Excuse me. And I, as I was thinking about this, I was reminded when I was a kid, even as I came up with the, the title of this sermon, I used to watch a cartoon when I was young called Transformers. And the theme of that was, more than meets the eye. It was a big deal. But I see as, as Christians, you know, there's, there's a lot more to Christians than we think. I mean, we just look at one another just as normal everyday people. But in the eyes of God, it's so much more. C.S. Lewis captured this brilliantly, uh, this, this idea of how we really are in our true state. He said it this way. He said, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. Jesus said we are all gods, quoting the psalmist. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all our friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, Civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. See, God has created to, for us to have eternity within our hearts, as it says in the book of Ecclesiastes. And we, we have to understand that we are eternal beings. That we're here for a short time. But we are created in the flesh to be here for a short time, but to be with God for eternity. This is the warm-up act, as it were, for the main performance. Now, we see, though, that when Jesus comes along the scene, He is speaking to us about our eternal nature. He says that He divides the world into two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of Satan, and then there's the kingdom of God. There are no other kingdoms. There are no Switzerland's in the battle between good and evil. You cannot remain neutral. The Scripture is very clear. There is the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan. And one day, they will come to a head when the kingdom of Satan will be completely put down and the kingdom of God will be consummated in all of its fullness. So we see this kingdom of God. Now, when did, the question is, is, what is the kingdom of God? Before we even get under our passage, I want to try to describe it for you and give you a little bit of a definition. This isn't in your notes, but you can uh, write it down. I'll repeat it twice. The kingdom of God is the manifest presence of Christ's lordship over all the universe. So it's the manifest presence 
of Christ's lordship over all the universe and peoples, which was attained by his death on the cross. So I'll repeat it one more time because I know people are writing this down. The manifest presence of Christ's lordship over all the universe and peoples, which was attained by his death on the cross, comma, afforded to us by his resurrection, afforded to us by his resurrection, comma, and imparted by his spirit through faith in him. And imparted by his spirit through faith in him. All of this will be consummated at his second coming. I'll read it one more time. The manifest presence... I'll give you a short definition after this. You might want to write that one down. That one's really easy. The manifest presence of Christ's lordship over all the universe and peoples, which was attained by his death on the cross, afforded to us by his resurrection, and imparted by his spirit through faith in him. And all of this will be consummated at his second coming. Here's the short definition. For those that your fingers are tired uh, of writing. It's the rule of God's coming kingdom, breaking through the people of God for the glory of God. Like that one better, don't you? Yeah, the rule of God's coming kingdom, breaking through the people of God for the glory of God. So it's God's coming kingdom shown in us for God's glory. Now, the question is, is when did Jesus' kingdom start? Well, Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 1, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So the kingdom of God is personified in Jesus. It starts with him. It's found in him. He also said in the book of Luke, chapter 17, verse 21, Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He is the personification of that kingdom. Now, he is not only the kingdom, but by faith in him, we enter in as citizens of that kingdom once we place our faith and trust in him. Just like immigrants to the United States pledge loyalty to the U.S., so too do we pledge our faith and loyalty to him. We become citizens of another kingdom. Now, although the kingdom of God was started in Christ, it will not be actualized or consummated until he comes again. That's why the thief on the cross, he recognized this idea when he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. As he was before Pilate in John chapter 18. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So this kingdom was started in Christ, but it will not be consummated until he comes again. It's a bit like, and we've talked about this before, when the president in like November 2008, when uh, Barack Obama won the presidential election, he became known as the president-elect. Now, he is the president in that he has won the election, but he does not take complete office until January of that year. So in that period of time, he's the president-elect, and he is waiting to take charge. That was when the election will be consummated. Now, the same is true with Christ. Is After he died on the cross and rose again, that inaugurates, completely ushers in the reality of the kingdom of God. Now, that won't be consummated so until he comes again. So then, his rule and reign are now made manifest in us by the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God, in essence, is planning, as, or excuse me, God has taken his Spirit, placed it in you to grow Jesus in you so that people might see the Son of God in you and the reality of the kingdom in your life. That's what it means. 
Now, we don't talk about this very often to our detriment. We need to examine it in greater detail. What does it mean then? How do we behave then as citizens of this kingdom? And what does this kingdom look like? Jesus had a, a great deal to say about this coming kingdom of God or the, the kingdom of heaven as the book of Luke uh, describes it as. In today's passage, we're going to see the reality of this kingdom and how are we to live in response of it because you know what? There's, there's a lot of dangers there. We can completely miss the boat in understanding this kingdom and what it means to us. So hopefully you've already turned with me to the book of Mark chapter 4. Let's look at chapter 4, verse 30 through 34. It's our tradition here at Village Bible Church, excuse me, Grace Campus, to stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. The Holy Spirit, through John Mark, says this, And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to bear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence now eagerly desiring to understand what it means to enter into the kingdom of God and to live as citizens of this kingdom. Lord, we pray that we might be faithful stewards of this word that you're entrusting to us now. I pray, Lord, that if there be any level of unbelief, there be any sin, Lord, remove it. Help us to confess it. Help us to seek restoration with you and hear this word clearly that you have for us, that we might go forth walking closer with you, glorifying your name in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So Jesus' parable, remember we talked about parables. They're earthly stories with heavenly meanings. Jesus talks a great deal in parables. He's a storyteller. And he uses this story, as we talked about last week, stories communicate meaning. We all do this in every culture. Every society tells stories to somehow communicate meaning. And that's what Jesus is doing. And he tells this parable of the mustard seed. And he starts off with, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? He starts off describing it as a grain of mustard seed. Now, a mustard seed, as we read within this, which is sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Now, we have to get some context here. It's not actually the smallest seed in all the earth. We have the lavender seed is smaller than this, but it is the smallest seed that would have been familiar to his audience. So when he's saying in all the earth, he's saying that in your, it's an expression. So he's saying in all the earth, it's what you understand. It's the smallest seed, the mustard seed. But it grows and it expands. Now, Jesus' parable of the mustard seed involves the possibility of missing the presence of God's kingdom. That's the first point. We can miss it. That's why he's saying it's so small. What can I compare it to? It starts off really small. And most of us, we don't realize that. That God's kingdom started off small. It wasn't with fanfare. It wasn't with trumpets. It was with a boy born into a, a, a very uh, difficult situation. What was going on politically? What was going on religiously? He enters in, I mean, born to a teenage mother. Some estimates put Mary around 13, 14 years of age. Joseph was considered to be a little bit older than that. It was customary uh, for younger, I mean, men that were usually, uh, the husband would be 10 to 12 years older than the young woman. 
And it was a very difficult situation because they weren't yet married. They were betrothed, which was like an engagement, but had even more greater legal ramifications. So it was a, a very strange thing. It had a very small beginning in the life of this baby boy. And it has a small beginning in our lives. It starts to stir within us as we start to understand God's word and try to apply it to our life. So it starts small, but then it starts to blossom. There is phenomenal blossoming. He says it grows and expands. I mean, if you think about it, it's unbelievable. There are approximately 7 billion people in the world right now. Now, liberal estimates have that percentage of that 7 billion. There are approximately 2 billion Christians. That's that's phenomenal. Christianity is expanding all over the world in in a very phenomenal way. Did you know in the year 1900 that 9 out of 10 Christians were from Indo-European background. That means 9 out of 10 Christians in the world were white. But, do you know what it is now? 6 out of 10 Christians, by the year two, uh, actually by the year 2008, according to last stats, are in the global south, meaning they are in the south of the equator, which means Christianity has changed significantly. It's black, it's brown, it's yellow, it's all of these different colors. It has changed completely in how it looks. If you were to map Christianity out on a map in the year 1900 and put a statistical center, the statistical center would have been Spain. By the year 2025, do you know where the statistical center of Christianity will be? Nigeria. It's shifting, and it's looking completely different. For those that have, you grew up in a Christian environment, a Judeo-Christian culture in America, I mean, everybody around you probably looked and sounded the same. Not so anymore. God's kingdom is diversifying, and praise God for that. That's amazing, because that's what heaven's going to be like. I mean, I don't know about you, I don't like just vanilla. I like 31 flavors. That's what I love about God's kingdom. It can go into any culture and transform it, and God's kingdom begins to grow. And it it doesn't matter about what's going on in that culture. I mean, it doesn't matter what political system you're doing. It it doesn't matter matter what type of persecution there is. God's kingdom is going to grow. Walls can't stop the kingdom of God. I mean, look at the USSR, where atheism was almost a state religion. And people were banning Christianity, and there was the, the underground church, and it began to flourish. I think of China when all the missionaries were expelled in 1954 and all the missionaries were going to, saying to one another, how is Christianity going to grow if there's no one to tell it? They'd already heard about it, but the church was very, very small. And now conservative estimates have it at 40 million people. And the liberal estimates are 130 million Christians. And these people are dedicated. They have a campaign within the Chinese church and slogan called Back to Jerusalem. And they say that they are going to take the gospel back to Jerusalem, which means they're going to go through all of those countries between China and Jerusalem to share the gospel. And you're talking about uh, countries that are completely Islamic. And they say, we are prepared to die to bring the gospel to these people. We want to share the kingdom of God with them. We're prepared to give our lives. And as soon as we give our life, someone will step up and take our place. I mean, what's going on in the Chinese church is absolutely phenomenal because God's kingdom is growing. It it begins to grow within our lives and begins to transform us. And it has this phenomenal blessing. I want to show you this picture of what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what a mustard seed starts off really small. That's how big it got. Pretty phenomenal. I mean, it's phenomenal blessing. God has promised to bless. 
And he has said within his word that the, the, the fields are white for harvest. I mean, it's going to grow. Nothing can stop it. No one can stop it. No one can thwart it. Nothing can stop the purposes of God. If God is for us, who can be against us? And God has declared that it's going to grow. But so will persecution. So will misunderstanding. So will, so will those who are coming against God and His coming kingdom. Because there are people that don't want His rule and His reign in their lives. They don't want Him as Savior and Lord. C.S. Lewis once said that there are two types of individuals in the world. There are those that say to God, Thy will be done. And there are those that say to God, that God says to them, Thy will be done. It's pretty phenomenal. We either submit ourselves to God and His rule and His reign, willfully, or unwillfully. But there is the danger of missing the presence of God's kingdom. It has a small beginning. It has a phenomenal blossoming. And then it has inevitable blessing. Inevitable blessing. Jesus said that this seed would grow and that it would become larger than all the plants and put out, puts out large branches as we just saw within the picture so that the birds of the air can make nests in the shade. Now, it's hard to know exactly what this means. Scholars are divided. Commentators don't know exactly. Everyone has their idea of what these birds are and how do they nest in there. And the fact is we don't know for sure. But we do know that someone is finding rest within it. And that it is, it, the desire is, is that it provides shade and sanctuary to others. And that means Christianity is going to bless others. Wherever the kingdom of God arrives, there is blessing. Now, but at the same time, we have to be honest with ourselves and look in the mirror. Because there are times, and this is to our shame, and we cannot be ignorant of our own history, that Christianity has done some very bad things. Think of the Crusades, the Inquisition, the Counter-Reformation. There's been genocide. There's been some horrible things done in the name of Christ. Now, some people will say, well, they're not true believers in Christ, so well, they never would do that. Let me ask you a question. Are you a true believer in Christ, and do you ever do something sinful? We must make sure that we are living as citizens and understanding that we are also sinful, and that even those who are elect, those who are followers of Christ, can be misled by ungodly people. That's why we are to pray for our leaders as they lead us. Because leaders can be misguided and miss the boat and even fall into the influence of the evil one and he can lead them in a terrible way. Now, as I say that, I think the positive far outweighs the negative. I think about how cultures have been transformed with the coming of God's kingdom. I mean, there have been uh, slaves had rights, especially within the ancient world. I mean, one of the emperors even said, even the slaves are thinking. Women were suddenly exalted and esteemed in a very phenomenal way that had not been done within a, a, a very male-dominated society. I mean, as we've talked before, who were given the responsibility or given the, the, the divine blessing of being the first uh, viewers or benefactors, beneficiaries on the site? Who saw the resurrection first? Women. In a society which is pretty amazing to think about, in a society where a woman's testimony was considered not to be valid. God gives that divine blessing to women. And, and I think about how even Christ comes in and can transform a society. 
especially when it comes into a, a culture where there is no, there's no written language. You see Christianity coming in, and, and it becomes incarnate in that they, the missionaries learn the language, then they put it on the paper, and then they translate the Word of God to it. So they have given them a written language, a means of communication, and then the Bible becomes the center of that culture, and they begin to base the truths of God's Word, or the, truths, uh, the principles within God's Word, um, in that culture. I mean, I think of also the end of slavery with William Wilberforce. Uh, I think of all of these different things that have been accomplished within a culture. You have an end of child sacrifice. You have missionaries coming along the side and saving babies that were cast off in places such as China and India. I mean, you have Christians coming alongside and rescuing those that even now are within the sex trafficking uh, realm. These are what some, many Christians have done to be salt and light but we also have to realize that we can make mistakes. We can sin. And we must be aware of that as we go and we do what God desires us to do, is to be salt and light. But Christianity does transform cultures from the inside out. So we must be able to make sure that we have an understanding of how badly it can go if done wrongly, but how much of a blessing it can be when done Rightly, because we have been created to help others to do good works and to show by our acts that Jesus is our Lord. That's how we show ourselves as different. Jesus created us to be that way. That's how we show ourselves to be citizens of God's kingdom. As the Apostle Paul wrote, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to, be, to subject all things to Himself. See, many Christians forget that we are citizens of God's kingdom, first of all. They are not only in danger of missing it, but we are in danger of misunderstanding the power of God's kingdom. The power of God's kingdom. See, we must understand that God's kingdom is hidden. It's growing in ways that we can't see all the time. It's not all about bodies, buildings, and budgets. It's how many pastors have decided and discerned whether or not they are successful in the ministry. Does the body get bigger? Does the building get bigger? Does our budget get bigger? You don't see those within the Scripture. You see heart transformation occurring. We must understand that God's kingdom is hidden. There's a great deal of confusion surrounding God's kingdom. It's not a Christian culture. That's not God's kingdom. It is not one denomination. It's not one church. It's not a political party and won't be brought about by the elective process. It will not be brought out by legislation. Legislation is good to a point in that it's to help restrain evil and to point others to good. But there is another point when any attempt to legislate Christianity is very bad. Christianity does well when we are not in the majority. What I mean by that is this. Consider, for example, the Edict of Theodosius in the year 390 A.D. He was the Roman emperor, Theodosius I, who made Christianity the state religion. It was the first time Christianity was ever made the state religion, but it didn't help. At first glance, everybody was like, yeah, we got our candidate in place, man. We got it. We're going. This is so sweet. See, but then people started wanting to be Christians, not because their heart was transformed, because it helped them in their political endeavors. And there's nothing worse than people that try pretend to be Christian when their heart's not been renewed. There should be freedom of religion, yes. But don't make it the state religion. That's wrong. See, at first glance, it looked like a political coup, but it proved disastrous because men and women started entering into the church who did not have the spirit of Christ within them. Christianity became political capital. And is it not the same today? We're constantly looking at the faith of our political candidates. The reality is 
that many of them have personal lives that are absolute wrecks, and they use faith as a means of getting elected. When you see a political candidate change their church because it makes more votes, we have a problem. And that's what's going on today, all the time. In our society right now, there's all this many debates. And I know that many of you probably had that debate in your home. You've watched it on the news. And even today, I was looking at CNN Belief Blog, and it's talking about the faith of one candidate and how he changed his his church affiliation right when he tried to run for, as he started to run for president. Now, what does that tell you? What does that tell me? That they are using their faith as a means to get elected. That's not good. I mean, consider, for example, Jimmy Carter. For those who've been around a long time, remember the year 1976, it was celebrated as the year of the evangelical. Year of the evangelical. He was the first born-again presidential candidate. Now, what many don't remember is that Gerald Ford was also involved in that. Now, the thing about Jimmy Carter was is that he filled in sometimes when the pastor wasn't there. He taught Sunday school. He was a Southern Baptist, and he talked about his, his faith freely, and he, he was born again. And he used that as a means of getting elected. But most, what most don't know is that Gerald Ford also was a Christian. And also claim to be born again. Matter of fact, his son graduated from the seminary that I attended, and he spoke at the commencement. He became great friends uh, with a, a man who became a close confidant of his. Uh, his name was Zeolius, his last name. And he, uh, most don't know is that Ford had rededicated his life under this man's ministry when he was the minority leader in the Senate. He attended Bible studies and prayer meetings that were off the record. He didn't want people to know about it. He didn't publicize it. He even had several Bible studies in the Oval Office that no one knew about. And this, his friend, Billy Zioli, this close personal friend and kind of chaplain to the president, sent him devotionals every single week that Ford was in the office of president, 146 in all. And he read every single one of them. But Ford was extremely private about his faith, which was tested during the 76 presidential campaign. Carter talked a great deal about being born again, but Ford kept his faith to himself. Now, Time Magazine in 2007 ran an article on the faith of Ford reported that after Carter started using his faith to further his political position, Billy Zioli proposed a counterattack to Ford. He said, Jerry, look, Carter's a fine guy, a fine Christian, but nobody knows you're a Christian. Let's put a book together about your faith and about how God has used you. But Ford flatly refused. He said, you told me a long time ago we're not going to take advantage of our faith to get elected, he reminded Zioli. Ford declined to allow Zioli to lend his name to preachers' committees for Ford. He thought he'd be using his chaplain to get votes, Zioli recalled. Ford later revealed that he found Carter's discussion of his faith unsettling. He said, I always felt a closeness to God and have looked uh, to him for guidance and supports. Ford explained, but I didn't think it was appropriate to advertise my religious beliefs as a means of getting elected. No one knew that. And I'm not, I'm not talking about his presidency. I'm not talking about the mistakes that he made. I'm just talking about his faith in general. We have to be very discerning when we look at someone's life because we always don't know. It's hidden. Now, we're to share our faith, which I'm sure that he did. He just didn't do it as a means of getting elected. God's kingdom is hidden and it's transferred through faith. As Paul said, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith because we do share our faith with others. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. See, the kingdom of God is shown in the heart. That's where it's shown. It's hidden 
and that it's growing in ways that we can't possibly comprehend, as we saw last week, but it's really shown in the heart. It's not about signing a registry. It's not about becoming a member, being baptized, or by doing good works. It's by having our life transformed by the Spirit of God and the Son of God growing up in us. God gives us His Spirit so the Son of God might grow up in us, transforming us, convicting us of sin, and enabling us to do what it is that He desires us to do. God writes His law within our hearts. That's where it is. It's not in our outward appearance, but in our heart. As the Lord says, for the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's been said that there will be many in heaven. When we, when we get to heaven, there's going to be two surprises. First of all, there are going to be those that we couldn't ever imagine that they would ever be in heaven, and there they are. That's going to be a surprise. You're here, they're going to be looking at you going, yeah, I'm surprised at you. I'm surprised that you're here. <laughs> you, Mondo. <laughs> pointed at himself when I pointed at him. But there will also be the surprise that many that we thought would be there aren't. Those are the two surprises. Many that we never imagined to be there are, and, and many of those that we thought would be there are not. Are not. Because the kingdom of God is really shown in the heart. It's not in the outward appearance. It's in the heart. The true citizens of God's kingdom also will be revealed at harvest time. It's only at the end of time when the sheep are separated from the goats, when it's revealed at harvest time, those who are His. I mean, we can know in our hearts, we can be assured of our salvation. As, the, as John wrote, that you may know that you have eternal life. We can know that we have eternal life. We can have assurance of our salvation. But we don't know about someone else's faith. I mean, I, I've had people over the years tell me, I'm a born-again believer in Christ. And yet you see their life just unravel a few months or weeks later. And not just that they're... they're They've sinned, but they just leave the faith altogether time and time again. We won't know truly until the harvest time when the sheep are separated from the goats, when the wheat are separated from the tares. God knows who are those who are His, and we can't have assurance of our salvation, but for others we won't know until the harvest. We can't see who they really are because it's not going to reveal until the harvest time. But once the harvest time occurs, we will see people really as they are. As I mentioned earlier, Lewis is very good at describing this. He describes this in his book, The Great Divorce, uh, Divorcing Heaven and Hell and Separating Them. He says this, I cannot now remember. It's an allegory of a bus ride to, to heaven, actually. And uh, he sees all these different people on his way. And he says, I cannot now remember whether she was naked or clothed. If she were naked, then it must have been the almost visible penumbra, uh, penumbra of her courtesy and joy which produces in my memory the illusion of a great and shining train that followed her across the happy grass. She's walking this beautiful, magnificent uh, figure. He says, if she were clothed, then the illusion of nakedness is doubtlessly, doubtless due to the clarity with which her inmost spirit shone through the clothes, for clothes in that country are not a disguise. The spiritual body lives along each thread and turns them into living organs. A robe or a crown is there as much as one of the wearer's features as a lip or an eye. But I have forgotten, and only partly do I remember, the unbearable beauty of her face. Is it, is it, I whispered to my guide, he says, not at all. It is someone you've never heard of, this woman. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. She seems to be, well, a, a, portion, a, a person of great significance. Aye, she's one of the great ones. You've never 
You've, you have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. And he goes on to describe that this woman, she is so beautiful now, and the things that she did on earth were small things. She took people into her home. She loved them. She told other people about Jesus. She took care of the least of these. She, went, she didn't get all the press and the fanfare. She didn't get all the stage. Her name wasn't up in lights. But eternity will show the acts that she has done for Christ. She will be seen in the true reality of who she is in eternity. When we enter into heaven to be with Jesus, God will show us our true state for everything that we are and what we have done in His name. So, if we are citizens of God's kingdom, then what does that mean for us? How should we be then ministering in light of God's promised kingdom? Here's some things. If, if God's coming kingdom is promised to come and it's continually growing, what does that mean for us as Village Bible Church Grace Campus? What does that mean for us as a body and what does that mean for us as individuals? God's kingdom is coming. It can't be stopped. It can't be. It's going to be consummated. We don't know the date, but it's going to be consummated. Just like when the, the president run the election, um, won the election, you know he's going to take office on a certain date. Just as Jesus died and rose again, He entered into heaven and He's promised to return again. We don't know that date, but we know that, and commanded that we are to be ready and to be living as faithful citizens of that kingdom, ready for that day. So how should we then be living in light of God's promised kingdom? Well, God's promised kingdom ensures us that we can be boldly telling others about Jesus. Boldly telling others about Jesus. See, when President Obama was elected in, in November of 2008, he had to wait till January of 2009 before he took office. His staff could be bold, though, in getting ready for assuming office. They could tell others what the president would be doing and plan accordingly. The same is true for us. Our Lord has been elected by his death and resurrection. He's the Savior elect. And in heaven, he has already assumed his office, but for us on earth, we're waiting for him to consummate it to take his office here on earth. It also means that we, not only can we be telling others about who Jesus is with full authority, because Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth is be given to me. Because people say, why do you have to tell me? What gives you that right? It doesn't give me any right whatsoever, except God is who he says he is. He calls us to tell other people about who he is with all authority. With all authority. And without apology, but doing so with gentleness and respect. That's how we're to be telling others about who Jesus is. Now, God's promised kingdom also ensures us that we have the power to be breaking free from sin. I know everyone in this room, and myself included, we struggle with sin in some, which, some way. Some people, it's one way, and other people, it is another way. But God's promised kingdom has assured us that we can now break free from the power of sin. You see, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, that we have been, by, by our faith in Him, we have been delivered by the penalty of sin. See, death no longer has any hold on Jesus because he had no sin. He died our death, in essence. By faith in him, we die with him. We are crucified with him. And then by faith in him, we are participating in his resurrection life. And then God now God gives us his spirit to live a victorious Christian life. And the spirit of God tells us that we now have self-control. You don't have to keep doing the sin that you were doing. See, Jesus not only freed us from the penalty of sin, but from the very power of sin. You don't have to do it any longer. See, Satan, 
tries to continue to remind us that he keeps coming back saying that you have to pay him. You have to sin. We don't have to any longer. We've talked about this in the past. It's a good way to illustrate it is this. You live in an apartment, and your landlord is Satan. Every time that he comes knocking at the door, you have to pay him. You don't have a choice. But see, when Jesus died, he purchased the building. He's your new landlord. But see, Satan's a freeloader. He stays in the apartment, and he keeps knocking at your door, trying to get money from you. You don't have to open the door anymore. <laughs> you can slam the door in his face. You say, I don't have to do anything you tell me to do because you have no legal right to me any longer. And the Bible says that I've been purchased through him that you have no right to me any longer. So you don't have to continue to sin. God's kingdom breaking into your life means that the life of the Son of God is available to you. That same power that resurrected him from the dead is available in you through faith in Him, as it's appropriating the grace of God and the Word of God, you don't have to continue in sin. You can say no to sin now. Did you know that? You don't have to do it anymore. And when you say, the devil made me do it, it's because you're giving him credence into your life. You're allowing him to speak lies to you, and you're not standing in truth. That's why Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Make them holy by appropriating the word of God into your life. That's why we read and memorize the word of God. Because it, it strengthens us. It empowers us. Because the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It is God-breathed. It is alive. And it's cutting us. But it's enabling us to do what God wants us to do as this as the Spirit of God is bringing the words of Christ home to us. We can be breaking free from sin. Jesus' death enabled us to be free from the penalty of sin. Now we are freed from the power of sin, and in heaven we will be freed from the very presence of sin. Now, God's promise ensures us that we can also be building God's kingdom in small ways. Building God's kingdom in small ways. As the Bible tells us, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. God's kingdom is built in small ways. Now, how is God's kingdom built? A variety of ways. The biggest way is by making disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, and teaching them to do everything I've commanded unto you. And behold, I am with you until the very end of the age. Sorry, that was a little fast. So we make disciples, but we also do acts of righteousness. We're created to do good works. So when we're doing good works, that means serving in church, sacrificing ourselves, being poured out as drink offerings, serving the Lord. That might be serving in Awana. It might be changing diapers in the nursery. It could be cleaning the church. They're very small ways that we help grow the kingdom of God by being faithful in our giving of our tithes and our offerings. They may not seem like much to you, but these are amazing things that are being done. And they build God's kingdom in small ways, enabling other people to see Jesus and come to know who Jesus is. Building God's kingdom in small ways by telling your coworker, by telling your classmate, by, by leaving a track, by doing many different things, by going to the prisons, by going and even singing at a nursing home. It could be a variety of different ways. There is no limit on the ways in which we can bring God glory. So we can build God's kingdom in small 
ways. And as God's kingdom comes, it begins to, we, we see it growing in an individual's life, and we see it and look forward to that day when it will be consummated with Jesus' second coming. God will bring great glory to his name. So we see two kingdoms that are at work in the world. The question for each one of us is this. Which kingdom are we a part of? Scripture says very clearly that Satan is the, the ruler of this world, this earthly kingdom. And Jesus' kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. It also, Scripture says, that he has successfully blinded the minds of unbelievers, that they've been ensnared by him to do his will, that they cannot comprehend the glory that is to come. They've chosen to believe a lie. But then there's God's coming kingdom. There's a kingdom of light and a kingdom of truth. Which are we part of? Are we as individuals followers of this kingdom? You can't remain neutral. One or the other. Which are you a part of? Are we building his kingdom in our workplaces? Are we building his kingdom in our families? Are we building his kingdom with our classmates? Are we building his kingdom with our family and our friends? That's the question we must ask ourselves. Are we truly living as citizens of God's kingdom? Or are we living as citizens of the kingdom of darkness? which is passing away. Only one kingdom is going to prevail, and that is the kingdom of Christ. So let us then, if we are citizens of this heavenly kingdom, live lives that are representative of this kingdom, that we show Christ in us, the Savior of the world, that other people might see Jesus in us and be drawn to the risen and living Savior, that they too might have life and have it to the full. That's the only way that there is. And if you are here today, and that you know that you've been living as a citizen of the kingdom of darkness, then you can transfer your allegiance. You can change your citizenship. And that has been already been afforded and made available to you through Jesus Christ. So if you place your faith in him, that if you call on the name of the Lord, you have been promised to be saved. God will not turn you away. He will save you, and then he will make you a child of God, a child of the heavenly kingdom. And if you are possibly here today and you know that you you have trusted in Christ, and you say, I know that I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God, but I've been committing acts of treachery. I've been a spy. I've been living as if I was in the other kingdom. Jesus' grace is available to you, and he will forgive you of your sins. And if you come to him in brokenness of heart, contrite in spirit, God will forgive you and transform you. I hope that's your prayer. I hope that's each one of our prayers, that we all might be true citizens of God's kingdom. Because it's going to grow. It starts off small, but it's going to grow. Lord, we need to ask God. That's what we need to ask the Lord. Is God, help us. Transform us. That we might help transform and tell other people about who you are. Let's pray. Our Father, Lord, I pray right now, if there's anyone here today who has not yet trusted in you, has lived as a citizen of Satan's kingdom, Lord, they have been blinded to who you are and what it is that you have done. They have been a child of darkness. Lord, I pray that you might shine your light, the penetrating light of your spirit upon their hearts, and you might grant them the repentance that leads to life. Lord, that you might enable them to call out to you right now and say to the Lord, Lord, forgive me. I repent of my sins, and I invite you as Lord and Savior of my life. Lord, we know that anyone who comes to you, you will by no means cast out. And Lord, for those of us who have lived as poor citizens, of your kingdom. Lord, please forgive us when we have fallen. Forgive us for our failures. Lord, help us to 
live in the forgiveness that has been made available to each one of us through the death of your Son on the cross. Lord, help us to glorify your name everywhere that you've placed us. Help us to build your kingdom by telling other people about who you are and doing acts of righteousness, good works that show that you, who you are in our lives. Lord, please glorify yourself in our midst. And may your kingdom be built in each one of our lives and in this church, but in this entire community, in the United States, and all over the world. Lord, continue to grow it. Bless your name. And Lord, we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.